0: Chapter 37 of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 37 1. She found employment in the Bureau of War Risk Insurance. Though the armistice with Germany was signed a few weeks after her coming to Washington, the work of the Bureau continued. She filed correspondence all day. Then she dictated answers to letters of inquiry. It was an endurance of monotonous details, yet she asserted that she had found real work. Dissolutions she did have. She discovered that in the afternoon office routine stretches to the grave. She discovered that an office is as full of cliques and scandals as a gopher prairie. She discovered that most of the women in the government bureaus lived unhealthfully, dining on snatches in their crammed apartments but she also discovered that businesswomen may have friendships and enmities as frankly as men, and may revel in a bliss which no housewife attains—a free Sunday. It did not appear that the great world needed her inspiration, but she felt that her letters, her contact with the anxieties of men and women all over the country, were a part of vast affairs, not confined to Main Street and a kitchen, but linked with Paris, Bangkok, Madrid she perceived that she could do office work without losing any of the putative feminine virtue of domesticity, that cooking and cleaning, when divested of the fussing of an Aunt Bessie, take but a tenth of the time which in a gopher prairie it is but decent to devote to them. Not to have to apologize for her thoughts to the jolly seventeen, not to have to report to Kennicott at the end of the day all that she had done or might do, was a relief which made up for the office weariness. She felt that she was no longer one half of a marriage, but the whole of a human being. Two. Washington gave her all the graciousness in which she had had faith. White columns seen across leafy parks, spacious avenues, twisty alleys. Daily she passed a dark square house with a hint of magnolias and a courtyard behind it, and a tall, curtained second-story window through which a woman was always peering. The woman was mystery, romance, a story which told itself differently every day. Now she was a murderess, now the neglected wife of an ambassador. It was mystery which Carol had most lacked in Gopher Prairie, where every house was open to view, where every person was but too easy to meet, where there were no secret gates opening upon moors over which one might walk by moss-deadened paths to strange high adventures in an ancient garden as she flitted up Sixteenth Street after a Chrysler recital given late in the afternoon for the government clerks, as the lamps kindled in spheres of soft fire, as the breeze flowed into the street, fresh as prairie winds and kindlier, as she glanced up the elm alley of Massachusetts Avenue, as she was rested by the integrity of the Scottish Rite Temple, she loved the city as she loved no one save Hugh. She encountered negro shanties turned into studios with orange curtains and pots of mignonette, marble houses on New Hampshire Avenue, with butlers and limousines, and men who looked like fictional explorers and aviators. Her days were swift, and she knew that in her folly of running away she had found the courage to be wise. She had a dispiriting first month of hunting lodgings in the crowded city. She had a roost in a hall-room in a mouldy mansion conducted by an indignant decayed gentlewoman, and leave Hugh to the care of a doubtful nurse. But later she made a home. Three. Her first acquaintances were the members of the Tincomb Methodist Church, a vast red brick tabernacle. Vida Sherwin had given her a letter to an earnest woman with eyeglasses, plaid silk waist, and a belief in Bible classes, who introduced her to the pastor and the nicer members of Tincomb. Carol recognized in Washington, as she had in California, a transplanted and guarded Main Street. Two-thirds of the Church members had come from Gopher Prairies. The Church was their society and their standard. They went to Sunday service, Sunday school, Christian endeavor, missionary lectures, Church suppers, precisely as they had at home. They agreed that ambassadors and flippant newspapermen and infidel scientists of the bureaus were equally wicked and to be avoided and by cleaving to Tincomb Church they kept their ideals from all contamination. They welcomed Carol, asked about her husband, gave her advice regarding colic in babies, passed her the gingerbread and scalloped potatoes at church suppers, and in general made her very unhappy and lonely, so that she wondered if she might not enlist in the militant suffrage organization and be allowed to go to jail. Always she was to perceive in Washington, as doubtless she would have perceived in New York or London, a thick streak of Main Street. The cautious dullness of a gopher prairie appeared in boarding-houses where ladylike bureau clerks gossiped to polite young army officers about the movies. A thousand Sam Clarks and a few widow Bogarts were to be identified in the Sunday motor procession, in theatre parties and at the dinners of state societies, to which the émigrés from Texas or Michigan surged that they might confirm themselves in the faith that their several gopher prairies were notoriously a whole lot peppier and chummier than this stuck-up East. But she found a Washington which did not cleave to Main Street. Guy Pollock wrote to a cousin, a temporary army captain, a confiding and buoyant lad, who took Carol to tea-dances and laughed, as she had always wanted someone to laugh, about nothing in particular. The captain introduced her to the secretary of a congressman, a cynical young widow with many acquaintances in the navy. Through her Carol met commanders and majors, newspapermen, chemists and geographers, and fiscal experts from the bureaus, and a teacher who was a familiar of the militant suffrage headquarters. The teacher took her to headquarters. Carol never became a prominent suffragist. Indeed, her only recognized position was as an able addresser of envelopes. But she was casually adopted by this family of friendly women who, when they were not being mobbed or arrested, took dancing lessons or went picnicking up the Chesapeake Canal or talked about the politics of the American Federation of Labor. With the Congressman's secretary and the teacher, Carol leased a small flat. Here she found home, her own place and her own people. She had, though it absorbed most of her salary, an excellent nurse for Hugh. She herself put him to bed and played with him on holidays. There were walks with him, there were motionless evenings of reading, but chiefly, Washington was associated with people, scores of them, sitting about the flat, talking, 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 not always wisely, but always excitedly. It was not at all the artist's studio of which, because of its persistence in fiction, she had dreamed. Most of them were in offices all day, and thought more in card catalogues or statistics than in mass and colour. But they played, very simply, and they saw no reason why anything which exists cannot also be acknowledged. She was sometimes shocked, quite as she had shocked Gopher Prairie, by these girls with their cigarettes and elfish knowledge. When they were most eager about Soviets or canoeing she listened, longed to have some special learning which would distinguish her, and sighed that her adventure had come so late. Kennecott and Main Street had drained her self-reliance. The presence of Hugh made her feel temporary. Some day—oh, she'd have to take him back to open fields and the right to climb about haylofts. But the fact that she could never be eminent among these scoffing enthusiasts did not keep her from being proud of them, from defending them in imaginary conversations with Kennicott, who grunted—she could hear his voice—'They're simply a bunch of wild impractical theorists sitting around chewing the rag! And I haven't got the time to chase after a lot of these fool fads, I'm too busy putting aside a stake for our old age! Most of the men who came to the flat, whether they were army officers or radicals who hated the army, had the easy gentleness, the acceptance of women without embarrassed banter, for which she had longed in Gopher Prairie. Yet they seemed to be as efficient as the Sam Clarks. She concluded that it was because they were of secure reputation, not hemmed in by the fire of provincial jealousies. Kennicott had asserted that the villager's lack of courtesy is due to his poverty. We're no millionaire dudes," he boasted, yet these army and navy men, these bureau experts, and organizers of multitudinous leagues, were cheerful on three or four thousand a year, while Kennicott had, outside of his land speculations, six thousand or more, and Sam had eight. Nor could she upon inquiry learn that many of this reckless race died in the poorhouse. That institution is reserved for people like Kennicott. Who, after devoting fifty years to putting aside a stake, incontinently invest the stake in spurious oil stocks. 4. She was encouraged to believe that she had not been abnormal in viewing Gopher Prairie as unduly tedious and slatternly. She found the same faith not only in girls escaped from domesticity, but also in demure old ladies. Who, tragically deprived of esteemed husbands and huge old houses, yet managed to make a very comfortable thing of it by living in small flats and having time to read. But she also learned that, by comparison, Gopher Prairie was a model of daring color, clever planning, and frenzied intellectuality. From her teacher housemate, she had a sardonic description of a Middle Western railroad division town of the same size as Gopher Prairie but devoid of lawns and trees, a town where the tracks sprawled along the cinder-scabbed Main Street, and the railroad shops, dripping soot from eaves and doorway, rolled out smoke in greasy coils. Other towns she came to know by anecdote, a prairie village where the wind blew all day long, and the mud was two feet thick in spring. And in summer, the flying sand scarred new painted houses, and dust covered the few flowers set out in pots. New England mill towns, with the hands living in rows of cottages like blocks of lava. A rich farming center in New Jersey, off the railroad, furiously pious, ruled by old men, unbelievably ignorant old men, sitting about the grocery talking of James G. Blaine. A southern town, full of the magnolias and white columns which Carol had accepted as proof of romance, but hating the negroes, obsequious to the old families. A western mining settlement like a tumor. A booming semi-city with parks and clever architects, visited by famous pianists and unctuous lecturers, but irritable from a struggle between union labor and the manufacturers' association so that in even the gayest of the new houses there was a ceaseless and intimidating heresy hunt. Five. The chart which plots Carroll's progress is not easy to read. The lines are broken and uncertain of direction. Often instead of rising they sink in wavering scrawls, and the colors are watery blue and pink and the dim gray of rubbed pencil marks. A few lines are traceable, Unhappy women are given to protecting their sensitiveness by cynical gossip, by whining, by high church and new thought religions, or by a fog of vagueness. Carol had hidden in none of these refuges from reality, but she, who was tender and merry, had been made timorous by Gopher Prairie. Even her flight had been but the temporary courage of panic. The thing she gained in Washington was not information about office systems and labor-unions, but renewed courage, that amiable contempt called poise. Her glimpse of tasks involving millions of people and a score of nations reduced Main Street from bloated importance to its actual pettiness. She could never again be quite so awed by the power with which she herself had endowed the Vidas and Blossers and Bogarts. From her work, and from her association with women who had organized suffrage associations in hostile cities, or had defended political prisoners, she caught something of an impersonal attitude, saw that she had been as touchily personal as Maud Dyer. And why, she began to ask, did she rage at individuals? Not individuals, but institutions are the enemies, and they most afflict the disciples who the most generously serve them they insinuate their tyranny under a hundred guises and pompous names, such as polite society, the family, the church, sound business, the party, the country, the superior white race, and the only defence against them, Carol beheld, is unembittered laughter. End of chapter 37